Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good afternoon, Steve. Good afternoon, Bill. What we're going to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the sense of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then get you out to a natural spot and share with you everything that we've learned. And today, Steve, why don't you tell everybody, where are we? Oh, <laughs> kind of near your house, sort of. <laughs> we are in a little park that I knew Steve would not know the name of, uh, but I'm sure somebody out there does. It is the J.P. Nicely West Falls Town Park. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful name. This is a little park near my house, and it's along the banks of the Casanova Creek in western New York, which flows into Buffalo Creek, which eventually flows into Lake Erie. It's not a huge park. It does have some baseball diamonds and things like that, but it does have a little nice patch of old growth. Oh, uh, cool. the, the creek that flows through it is a nice shale bottom creek. So it's a nice little place that I like to come and hike. And I think it's a good spot for today's topic, which is... The Hemlock Woolly Adelgid. <laughs> Adelgis suge. And we're going to try to make this kind of a downer of a topic. We're going to make it as painful <laughs> as possible. That's a promise. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to try to present it in an upbeat way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I'm going to start with a, a story. And this took place about 10 years ago. Uh, before I, I knew everything that I knew about today, but uh, I was down in uh, North Carolina, actually in Smoky Mountains National Park with a good friend of mine. We were backpacking. After we were finished packing, we explored the park a little bit, did a lot of touristy stuff, and we ended up going to Clingman's Dome, which is a mountaintop right on the border of Tennessee and North Carolina. So a beautiful view. They have an overlook there, but I noticed as we were looking around at the landscape, we could see a surprising number of dead trees. And, you know, asking around the visitors there, nobody seemed to know what it was all about. But later on that day, when we did run into a ranger, uh, he pointed out to us that those were the effects of the hemlock woolly adelgid, and likely what we were seeing were dead hemlocks. So you saw it firsthand? We did. We saw the impacts. And uh, Smoky Mountain National Park, according to some of the research I did, has the largest concentration of eastern and Carolina hemlocks, uh, Tsuga canadensis and Tsuga caroliniana. Mm -hmm. And it has experienced probably the most impact to its hemlocks of all our national parks. Uh, but that was, if anyone's familiar with that area, it's just south of Gatlinburg, Highway 441, I think that's the name of it, 441 is a route that a lot of people travel. And just over the past 15 years, uh, you've been able to see along that route the real impacts of what the adelgid can do. Later on that day, we doing some hiking, we actually did find on some hemlocks down near the base of the needle, we, we did find some of those woolly sack-like structures. Now at the time, we didn't know enough about it, so I don't know if we were looking at adults mm -hmm. that were just covered uh, in that uh, woolly wax-like substance or if we were looking at egg sacs. Yeah, yeah. So it was during the spring. So it was probably both. And we'll uh, allude to this later, but because you saw it pretty low on the tree, you're actually able to grab it with your hands, yeah. that was probably late in the infestation. Okay. But we, I'll explain that a little bit later as the episode goes on. All right, yeah. So uh, I wanted to talk about just some general species info. Sure. Because I think it's important to give people an idea of, of what this little critter looks like. Mm -hmm. um, so as Steve said, Adelgia suge, uh, the hemlock woolly adelgid, and we may refer to it as HWA during the course of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> it's small. Uh, in some of my research, I came... Uh, across measurements anywhere from one to three millimeters. I didn't see anything above one and a half millimeters. And I think it depends on what stage of the life cycle you're looking at. Or if they're including the woolly mass on top of them. Maybe. Because I'm pretty sure the actual body doesn't get above uh, one and 1.5 millimeters. Well, whether you're, you're saying between one and three millimeters, to the naked eye, that's a pretty minor difference. <laughs> Very small, regardless. Yeah, this thing's uh, less than a sixteenth of an inch. Right. So more or less. Yeah. I know when, since then, when I have seen the adults, to me they look like tiny watermelon seeds. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the best analogy I can come up with. Depending on the stage in the life cycle, though, they can look different. Uh, but they are a piercing sucking insect. They're in the order Hemiptera, which mm -hmm. is the true bugs. So your aphids. Uh, your cicadas, your shield bugs, and Steve's favorite group of insects, the leafhoppers and the plant hoppers. <laughs> yeah, but something that's kind of interesting about them is that they're a little bit different from a lot of the hemipterans we've talked about so far. Do you know that they don't feed on the sap? 
Yes. Okay. Yes. Do you want to tell the audience what they do feed on then? <laughs> <laughs> this is actually a shout out to another episode, right? Mm-hmm. When the, the woolly adelgid feeds, as I mentioned, they're a piercing sucking insect, but they use a long structure called a stylet, mm-hmm. which is a long tube. And if you can't, folks, look this up. Just type into any search engine, uh, woolly adelgid stylet. This is a long tube-like structure, like way, way longer than this animal's body, probably like 10 times or more longer. And it's a cluster of tubes that go into the tree that pierces the, the woody part of the, uh, where the needle attaches, and it goes into the xylem, and it feeds on the parenchyma cells. Yeah. Correct? Mm-hmm. But that is sap, isn't it? No, that's actually stored starches, and those are actually pretty critical to the tree's growth and long-term survival. All right, so yeah. if you're a regular listener, you may remember that term, parenchyma cells, what we yeah. talked about in our sap episode. For more info on sap, xylem, and parenchyma, check out episodes 17 and 18, <laughs> all about those exact topics. For more about <laughs> sap than you would ever think you'd want to know. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so the woolly adelgid is currently found in uh, 19 eastern states, uh, in kind of its invasive form, and it has caused extensive mortality uh, to hemlock forests. So it's so small, you know, we talked about how small it is, it typically goes unnoticed until it has fully infested the hemlock tree. Yeah. So they're devious little guys. And actually, during early infestations, the hemlock woolly adelgid usually stays near the top of the tree. And since most people don't hang out near the top of hemlock trees, <laughs> they're not going to notice it there. Maybe you aren't, Bill, but... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so... In the last episode we did, it was actually a bonus episode on hemlock. So if you have not listened to that already and you kind of want to get a a foundation for hemlocks and what they're all about, I would strongly recommend listening to that. Yeah, but I think we should talk about hemlocks a little bit just in case we have any first-time listeners, you know? (laughs) In case someone actually doesn't want to go listen to that episode? Yeah. Well, there's actually some hemlocks over there, so why don't we head on over? Cool, yeah. All All right, so besides the Carolina hemlock... The eastern hemlock is virtually our only conifer in the eastern lowland deciduous forests. And I think now is a good time just to touch on a particular term that we brought up last episode, because eastern hemlock is also considered something called a foundational species, because where it occurs, it defines the forest structure and controls ecosystem dynamics. Now, Bill, do you want to explain the difference between keystone and foundational species? I do, (laughs) because during the episode we did on oaks and corvids, we referenced a study that referred to oaks as a keystone species. And we both kind of questioned that. We'd never heard an oak referred to as that before. Right. And then when we did the episode on hemlocks, you brought up foundational species. So I went back and kind of looked it over, and I had forgotten one aspect of keystone species, and that is a keystone species is one that has a disproportionate impact on its ecosystem when compared to its abundance. So it's something that there's not a lot of, but it has a huge impact which, really, when you think about it, that's what a keystone is, right? Sure. It's that little, <laughs> strangely shaped block in the middle of the Archway. arch. Yeah. Right. There's only one keystone in, in that structure. Right. Uh, so, in an ecosystem, it's a, a keystone species is typically one that's not abundant, but it has uh, a very large impact on how the system operates. And its absence would likewise have a big impact. Yeah, yeah. And whereas you look around with eastern hemlock, and it's not that they're scarce. I mean, maybe someday. Uh, but <laughs> actually, in, in some parts of the range, and maybe someday all over, right. uh, it may be similar to the uh, American chestnut. <laughs> oh, God. Well, as you said, it's the basis upon which the rest of the habitat relies. So not so much around here, where we are in western New York, and, and I would say throughout most of the east, but down in the more southern part of its range, you would have more hemlock groves, um, stands of hemlock. And there you could really see where its absence or any big drop in its population would have pretty significant impacts. Yeah, we get areas around here where you get hemlock stands that's pretty much all hemlock, but it's not an especially common forest type that I come across. I wouldn't call it a major part of our landscape. Right. And then in the south, in deciduous forests, hemlocks and rhododendrons do make up an important part of the understory in a lot of southern forests. Yeah. And... I think this is a good spot to mention, too, that, you know, hemlocks, they aren't just offering uh, habitat in terms of shelter or the food that they offer through their cones, but they do things like create shade, Mm. and that helps regulate things like stream temperature, temperature in habitats. Do you mind if I jump in and just say a few words on the effects that hemlocks have on their environment? No, go for it. Yeah, so like you were just saying, 
The eastern hemlock's dense canopies block out more light than their neighboring hardwoods, uh, and it's decaying leaf litter, acidifies soil, and it also slows down nutrient cycling. So these low light and acidic environments make competition difficult, which is ideal for less common plant species that have evolved to tolerate these conditions. Hemlocks also grow on slopes, shallow soils, and often along streams, which decreases erosion, uh, regulates water temperature year-round, and stabilizes stream banks. This makes them pretty important for moose and deer, black bear, salamanders, freshwater invertebrates that are intolerant to seasonal drying. There's also unique lichen and plant communities and cold water fish species, such as trout, that really rely on these environments. Um, Some birds that are pretty closely associated with eastern hemlock are the Blackburnian warbler, black-throated blue warblers, Acadian flycatchers, and blue-headed vireos. And there's many other species, but the podcast can only be so long. (laughs) (laughs) Hemlocks are awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Heck, even people like it. (laughs) The state of Pennsylvania made it their state tree in 1931, and it's one of the most cultured landscape tree species with about 274 cultivars. If you're, for some reason, I can't imagine why, but if you don't care about the ecological impacts, you know, the loss of a hemlock could have impacts on local human communities too because it is used for wood for framing for sheathing for subflooring and for pulp wood and you know people just like the appearance of it uh, if you're interested in a recipe for tea you will need to listen to the bonus episode because <laughs> <laughs> steve and i did make some hemlock tea and for our more financially minded listeners ecosystem services provided by hemlock forests have been valued at more than 950 dollars per square hectare per year so for people that don't know it an ecosystem service they're things that nature does for people for free. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And what that's saying is that if we eliminated the hemlock forests, we would have to invest that much money per hectare to replace what they're doing. Right. So, And that would be a lot of man-made stuff and, and actually probably a lot of plantings and uh, the, the Army Corps of Engineers getting involved. So, <laughs> And nobody likes that. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. All right. So the resulting loss of these hundreds of thousands of trees because of the hemlock Willie Adelgid from forests that range from Georgia all the way to New England, as I said, these, this has profound impacts on the local communities, but also their associated ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to give a, a real-world example of its impact, kind of a, a local example, so people could get an image of their head of what's going on. So along the border of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, there's a national recreation area called the Delaware Water Gap. You ever been there? No, but I read about it a little bit. It looks beautiful. (laughs) In that area, since the mid-1990s, there's been one research team. They've monitored 78 permanent hemlock plots. So from the mid-90s to 2008, it was a little over 10 years, they found about 30% of the hemlock trees there died because of hemlock willy adelgid. And it was projected that without intervention, that number would increase to 80% by 2022. So 8 out of every 10 hemlocks would be dead within five years without intervention. Wow. Um, and o- over about a nine-year period, hemlock willie adelgid-induced hemlock decline resulted in a bunch of things happening in the forest. Understory light levels doubled. Uh, there was a fourfold increase in vascular plant cover. And 35% of the surveyed plots were colonized by invasive plants, all because of this loss of hemlocks. Yeah, it's, it's tough because, uh, like I was saying before, Hemlocks actually do a bit to make competition real hard, but as soon as the canopies open up and you got light and you have extra resources added into the environment, there's a lot of plants that want to capitalize yeah. on that. <laughs> so they move changing. in pretty quick. Yeah. yeah. All right. So you're going to talk about the history. The yeah. Now? Yeah. So the HWA is an insect native to central Japan that is intimately connected with hemlocks and spruces. In Japan, native populations of the hemlock woolly adelgid spend their lives on hemlocks, especially the northern Japanese hemlock, that's Tsuga diversifolia, and the southern Japanese hemlock, Tsuga seboldii. Um, but surprisingly, hemlocks are not their primary host species. That honor goes to the spruces, uh, especially the hondo spruce, uh, Picea jesuensis, subspecies hondoensis, and the tiger tail spruce, Picea tirano. The spruce is the primary host because this is where hemlock woolly adelgid sexual reproduction occurs. And sexual reproduction is pretty important. Uh, <laughs> it produces genetic variation. and That's why es- we're here. Yeah, and it's, esp- and it's especially important for evolution and adapting to environmental changes. And you're bringing that up for a very specific reason. Right. Because the life cycle of the adelgid in its home range is different than the life cycle here in the east. We'll get into that shortly. Right. Okay. Yeah. 
All right, now back to the hemlocks. The hemlock woolly adelgid can reproduce on all species of hemlock sustainably, except eastern and Carolina hemlock. The Asian and the Pacific Northwest suga species have natural defenses and or predators that keep the hemlock woolly adelgid populations at low innocuous densities. And even when hemlock woolly adelgid occasionally reaches high densities on individual hemlocks in Japan, it's very rare that they cause any real serious damage. I just want to make sure people got that in their heads. So in its home range in Japan, and there is a population in the Pacific Northwest, there's predators there that help keep it in check, and the hemlocks there themselves aren't the ideal hosts that our eastern and our Carolina hemlocks seem to be that allow it to grow to such high levels. Exactly. And these species can exist sustainably with the HWA, probably due to a combination of a few things like host resistance, host tolerance, as well as the hemlock woolly adelgid predators that live in those areas. And the thing that I thought was kind of interesting is I was wondering why the two species we have up in the Pacific Northwest, why would they have defenses to this if they didn't evolve with them? But that's where I think I was wrong. (laughs) Because early on in the research for this episode, I was seeing that the earliest records of the hemlock woolly adelgid in the Pacific Northwest was in British Columbia in 1916, and then in Oregon and California in 1924. And that kind of made it seem like it was introduced at that point. But there's actually a little bit more to the story. The Asian populations of the hemlock woolly adelgid are genetically diverse and have been divided into four distinct lineages, one in mainland China, one in Taiwan, and two in Japan. The interesting thing is that the Pacific Northwestern population is unlike any of those. It's a fifth lineage. And this leads researchers to think that a lineage of the hemlock woolly adelgid is actually native to the Pacific Northwest and may have migrated to that region millions of years ago. Uh, So Um, everything there co-evolved with it, potentially. Yeah, exactly right. And it should go without saying that they've done the work and they know that the northeastern U.S. population of the hemlock woolly adelgid are not genetically diverse from the Asian populations. And more specifically, the genotype that we have here in the East has been identified as being from the Southern Japanese lineage. The low elevation populations. Oh, it sure is. That (laughs) mostly infest Tsuga Seboldii. As well as tiger tail spruce Picea tyranno. Right. So just to kind of give you guys a simple timeline of events, in 1936, the hemlock woolly adelgid spread to mainland Asia. By 1951, it was found on museum specimens in Richmond, Virginia. By 1985, it had invaded Connecticut, and that's where its biology was finally first studied. And then from 1997 until 2007, it more or less doubled its range in the northeastern United States, where it established in at least 16 states between Maine and Georgia, covering about half the range of eastern hemlock, especially in the warmer southern range. And now it's in 19 states. Exactly. You had just said that. (laughs) And actually between 2007 and right now, it's still spreading, but it's not spreading as fast. And that's partly to do to the colder climates in the northeastern region. It spread very fast in the south, but it's kind of having a little bit more trouble as it's moving up. Yeah, it seems to do better in warmer areas. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to actually get right into something that Bill was just alluding to. So this species is pretty cold hardy. In Japan, it experiences only about a 25% mortality in elevations between 4,900 and 5,400 feet above sea level, where minimum daily temperatures reach negative 31 degrees Fahrenheit. What? And in America, hemlock woolly adelgid sees a 60 to 70% overwintering mortality, and we don't get anywhere near that cold. So what's going on? This would be due to the fact that the southern Japanese lineage of hemlock woolly adelgid alternates between the tiger tail spruce and the southern Japanese hemlock, which are only found between 1,300 and 4,900 feet above sea level. And in these elevations, the hemlock woolly adelgid wouldn't really need to be especially cold hardy to survive. So either way, this mortality isn't too big of a problem for them over here in the east because their populations grow exponentially regardless. So it doesn't matter if they start off with kind of a, a bit of a smaller population in the spring. And you also have to imagine that they could potentially develop a greater cold hardiness over time and the cold weather may not really slow down their expansion forever, especially with northern regions warming due to climate change. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're going to be able to expand north as temperatures warm. Yeah. So... I don't think you mentioned how we think the Willie Adelgid got from those areas in Japan to the area in West uh, Richmond, Virginia. So folks out there might be wondering, why is this specific genetic population 
from Japan infesting the East? Well, we think it's because in 1911, a Japanese gardener was hired to create a traditional style Japanese garden, and that included exotic ornamental hemlock species, which probably came from Japan, <laughs> and that they had the adelgian on them, and it just spread from there. So we know people were pretty bad <laughs> about 60 or so years ago <laughs> in terms of moving this thing around. Well, they didn't know. <laughs> but, but as it turned out, even today, isolated infestations and long-distance movement of the hemlock woolly adelgid can more or less completely be blamed on a particular species of great ape that transports infested, <laughs> infested nursery stocks. <laughs> so we're still doing it. Yes, <laughs> yeah. we are. That is true. All right, so we've been kind of dancing around the life cycle. Yeah. Are you ready to get into it? Okay, let's jump into the life cycle. Because, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, its life cycle in its native range and in the Pacific Northwest is not the same as its life cycle here in the East. So these invasive populations in the East, they're doing something a little different. And uh, I'm going to let Steve, as I said, explain this one because he's going to do a better job than I would. At least I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) So I should warn you now that I'm going to describe what happens here, but I also want to touch on what happens over in Asia as well. Just a little bit. (laughs) And Steve's going to use some terms. Yeah, Yeah. and I'll I'll describe exactly what they mean. But bear with us, because when he's he's finished, I'm going to explain it in layman's terms very simply. Okay. (laughs) So in America, the hemlock woolly adelgid produces three generations each year, and each generation goes through six stages of development. The egg, four nymphal instars, and the adult. For people that don't know, a larval instar... Folks, when we say that, we're, that's just when a larva molts. When it sheds its skin, gets a little larger, larger, then it goes into a new instar stage. Yeah, it's just four stages of juveniles. Like if kids went through weird four stages. <laughs> and for anyone out there who might have some knowledge of the hemlock willy adelgid, you may have just said, wait a minute, Steve said three generations. He is going to explain that. <laughs> yeah, it's effectively two, but three do kind of happen here. Yeah. Okay, now let's jump back to Japan for just a second. In Japan, the hemlock woolly adelgid reproduces both sexually, so the ladies and the guys got to do it, and uh, and asexually. But in America, the hemlock woolly adelgid only reproduces asexually. I bet there's some people out there wondering, wait a minute, how does something reproduce asexually? Right. <laughs> well... Everyone in the population is a female, and they don't need fertilization for their embryos to develop. They can produce eggs without fertilization. Yep, uh, and the only problem with that is that there's not going to be much in the way of variation. Because sexual reproduction, like I was saying earlier, that's where you get genetic recombination, and that's how most um, evolution and adaptation happens, through sexual reproduction. So, and it's about to get a little technical, uh, but I think the life cycle is too interesting to skip. Okay, guys, the first generation are called cystins, and the first instars, called crawlers, hatch in July. Now, this stage is mobile, so they migrate to the bases of hemlock needles, where they will actually remain until they become adults. Occasionally, when populations are high, a few HWA individuals can settle on the woody part of the stem and survive to reproduce. So they don't necessarily need to be on the base of the needles, but that's where you're going to get the best results. Um, So at this point, they begin to feed on the needles, but then they soon go into a state of dormancy called estivation. Actually, the word cystin is Latin for to halt, and it's actually referring to that, that diapause, that time where they go dormant. And they stay in that state until October. And in terms of identification, they're about a half a millimeter, they're dark bodied, and they have a halo of woolly wax surrounding their bodies. In October, they become active again. and they can... one sec, because I just got to jump in, and I want to point out to people that it's interesting and kind of strange that these guys, they hatch in July when the weather is warm, but then they go into estivation until October, October. when you would think most insects would be thinking about closing up shop, but <laughs> it sounds like they're avoiding the extreme temperatures. The extreme warm temperatures yeah, they're, they're avoiding. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in October, they become active again. They continue feeding and developing. Through that cool stylet. <laughs> <laughs> and they mature by early February. Before dying in April, each cystin can produce up to 300 eggs that represent the second generation. And this is where it gets a little complicated. And I, I do have to say that my research showed that typically they're laying between 50 and 100 eggs. But they can produce up to 300. Yes. In a good year. <laughs> And like I said, this is complicated, so just try to follow me. And the reason it's complicated is because some of these eggs become something called progredians, while the rest become sexuperae. 
And this is something called a polymorphic lifestyle, meaning that the hemlock woolly adelgid can produce more than one type of adult. Polymorphic, more than one morph. Yeah, and you're probably more familiar with this phenomenon in ants, where the queen can produce different types of adults that have different functions in the colony. Okay, but now let's get to the offspring of the cystins. So starting with the progredians, these guys are the spring generation that remain and reproduce on hemlock. So these individuals live between April and June. Actually, the name progredian means to proceed, which is referring to their quick development. Oh, yeah. Yep. And these guys generally produce 20 to 75 eggs. More like 30. (laughs) <laughs> More like 30. Uh, <laughs> which hatch in a few days and become the next generation of overwintering cystins. So this restarts the cystin progredian loop. So you have one generation from July through April and another generation from April to July. Okay. So we just closed a loop. We've right. made a whole circle. In fact, this is the group we have to worry about the most. They're the ones causing the problems for our hemlocks in the east. Right. The right. cystins and the progredians are the only ones that are reproducing in the northeastern United States. Right. Okay, let's go on but let's to the up, other group. As you yeah. said, in the, the group that hatched in April... Some of them become pro- progredians, while the rest become sexiparae. Yes. So let's talk about what the sexiparae are. So these are the winged spring generation that are born on hemlock, but will only reproduce on spruce trees. So these winged adults are distinguished from the cystins and the progredians by a combination of a long five-segmented antennae, compound eyes, and four textured wings. In America, after becoming adults... In the east? Uh, no. In America. Really? In America, after becoming adults, these ladies fly off to find some spruce trees... And by early July, each adult sexypere lays up to 15 eggs beneath its folded wings. And these eggs become the third generation called the sexuales. Okay, the sexuales are the genetic dead-end generation that are born on spruces in America. Because they're not genetic dead-ends in Asia. I'll explain that in a little bit. So the reason I said they're a genetic dead-end generation is because that none of our spruces seem to be suitable. Meaning that when the sexuales hatch in July and start feeding on spruce, they all die within a few days without progressing beyond their first instar. Because they die without reproducing, this generation is actually considered a mortality factor in North American populations. Which, it's kind of funny to think like, oh, these guys are reproducing, but we know they're all going to die, so they're... The flying dead. (laughs) They're they're artificially inflating the mortality. uh. Yeah, yeah. It's actually pretty interesting. So over in Asia, that generation would find suitable spruce hosts, and they would reproduce sexually? Yep, and I'll get into that in just a second. Because this phenomenon of them dying on spruces has been observed in 15 different species of spruce, including in the Pacific Northwest populations, which seems a little weird because you're thinking if they evolved there for the last few million years, you would imagine them to be able to sexually reproduce. But it just turns out they can't. And they're not the only species that only sticks to asexual reproduction. There's there's a number of other species that do this as well. Like dandelion. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so they're parthenogenetic so they can produce seeds without fertilization they are capable of that wow it's not even self-crossing just yeah just producing seeds without fertilization wow okay well <laughs> back to the hemlock woolly adelgid um and so like we said earlier the northwest populations of the hemlock woolly adelgid are native and what's thought is that their separation from a suitable spruce host may have happened millions of years ago when they dispersed naturally from asia So it just so happened that they're getting along just fine in the Pacific Northwest. They just don't reproduce sexually. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to talk about what we're missing out on in America. So this is going to get a little repetitive because we've made this point a couple times. In its native range, the southern Japanese lineage of the hemlock woolly adelgid alternates between southern Japanese hemlocks, where it reproduces asexually, and the tiger tail spruce where the sexuperae produce male and female sexuales that reproduce sexually, with fertilized females producing a single large egg. One egg? One egg. <laughs> <laughs> wow. um, so this egg produces an asexual female, called a funditrix, <laughs> that settles near the spruce bud to overwinter, and then it goes into a period of dormancy. In the spring, the feeding by the funditrix begins transforming the bud into a gall that will eventually house her offspring. So the fundatrix lays a large clutch of eggs, and after hatching, the crawlers walk into the developing gall. These individuals, called 
Gallicole <laughs> are asexual and feed inside the multi-chambered gall, triggering its completion. This gall is actually pretty large and interesting looking. It kind of looks like, uh, like bigger than a quarter, I would say. Okay. It's actually pretty uniformly spiky. It kind of looks like a small green pineapple, and it can house over 1,000 adelgids. Wow. Yeah. So when the Gallicole mature... They fly back to the hemlock and start the cycle over in its native range. But because in America, there are no suitable spruces, it ends long before this can happen. All right. Yeah. So, to explain it simply. Sure. For the hemlock woolly adelgid that's causing problems here in the east, it has two generations a year. There's a spring generation from April to July, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then from July through the winter into April. Those are the two generations. Yeah. So effectively, all of North America has two generations, whereas the Asian hemlock woolly adelgids go through five generations. Yep. And here in America, we do have another generation, but it's a genetic dead end because we don't have suitable spruces. Right. So they show up, but they're not going to reproduce. So we don't count those. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that was a lot of terminology, but uh, I I think you did a good job, Steve. Yeah. This is the one part of the podcast no one will be able to tell their friends about. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what do you say we walk for a little bit? Yeah. Let's warm up. Let's head this way. All right. As you were talking, I feel like I just got to mention we're out here on a late November day. Yeah. So the weekend after Thanksgiving, and I'm struck by how quiet it is. Yeah. I mean, there's virtually no bird song. We heard a few blue jays. We heard a few crows, but really not much else. I had a red tail fly in front of me on my way here. Oh, nice. It was a really nice sight. So we do have a a hemlock in front of us right now, right? Let's let's do the test. (laughs) I'm not seeing anything. We're not seeing any evidence of a delgid. Not even any scale insects. Oh, I see some spider webbing. Yeah. So for anyone who hasn't listened to the, the hemlock bonus episode, hemlock has very short needles. Uh, they're flat, and they have white stripes on the underside. Yep, underside of these little needles. Yeah. They also have distinctly small cones as well. Oh, yeah, tiny yeah. cones. Cute, very yeah. cute. All right, so why don't we talk about some interactions with hemlock? Oh, yeah. So what happens once adelgids are there? Hold on one second. Let me just jump in with something that I, I, I want to say as long as we just talked about the winged generation that are genetic dead ends here in North America. If the wing individuals are only flying to spruce to ultimately have all their offspring die, how are the hemlock woolly adelgids spreading? And obviously they (laughs) they are spreading, um, at at least at at about 30 kilometers a year. And there are a few reasons that they are. There's abiotic factors like wind, and then there's biotic factors like birds, deer, and other forest-dwelling mammals that come in contact with the sticky ovisacs and crawlers. Like wood fairies. Yeah. (laughs) So, now, I thought this was kind of interesting because that wool, that waxy wool that the adults produce, it's actually pretty pragmatic. It's good for protecting both the adults and the eggs from predators, protects the eggs from desiccation, and it helps them disperse themselves to other hemlocks to eventually infest. Maybe we need to come up with some way to disrupt the way it produces that we can't disrupt the wind unfortunately (laughs) at at the very least let's kill all the birds and mammals maybe (laughs) and i just want to make sure i said that because so far we've talked about it moving but every time we talked about it moving it just died out so i want to make sure we we make sure the audience understands how this thing gets from how it gets around it's not just moving itself and this is something i heard not in any paper or anything but someone had suggested not putting your bird feeders near hemlock trees because it'll be a less chance of the birds landing around the feeder, like in the trees around oh, the feeder. And yeah, inadvertently moving some right. adelgids. So that's a very little thing to do that I, <laughs> I bet would have a very little effect size. But <laughs> it gets people thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's walk a little bit. Okay, yeah. We went to a dead end. <laughs> and let's talk about some interactions. The eastern North American hemlocks are our two species, uh, the eastern hemlock and the Carolina hemlock. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have evolved chemical defenses to protect against chewing insects. But remember, the adelgid is not a chewing insect. It's a sucking it, it's insect. It's piercing. Um, so they're vulnerable to these kind of insects. So while the adelgid is capable of quickly killing hemlock trees, the mechanism underlying the, the mortality has only recently started to be really looked at and, and understood. So we know that following initial infestation, the tree declines in health. 
Uh, it's marked by needle drop, bud abortion, and inhibition of new growth. So many hemlocks are killed in as little as four years, but with many trees, especially in warmer areas, um, trees die within 10 years. I saw between four and 15 years in the northern range, um, and then I saw three to six years in the southern range. Okay. And I also saw that the healthier the tree is and the more suitable its environment, the longer it will probably last. Yeah. Although higher nitrogen and potassium concentrations in hemlock needles were associated with higher hemlock woolly adelgid densities on the tree, meaning that hemlock woolly adelgids, unfortunately, also like healthy trees. <laughs> <laughs> but that does make sense because it's not the, the feeding. It's not like they're feeding it to death but what's happening is infested hemlocks are more susceptible to other pests and it alters their response to environmental stresses so if you're starting with a healthier tree yeah it's it's going to live longer right typically and speaking of other stresses there's a lot of things that hemlock have to put up with (laughs) and i just i'm just going to list off a few here that normally might not be the worst problem in the world but if you're already really stressed out by hemlock woolly adelgid then you're really going to be bothered by elongate hemlock scale the the hemlock looper we brought up last episode spruce spider mites hemlock borer (laughs) honey fungus the amarilla root rot hemlock twig rust fungus and and all of these accelerate the rate and extent of hemlock mortality if if you ever want to be depressed and i don't know why you would but uh when i worked at uh, the nature center we had uh, a nature festival and we had a, a guy from the dec come in and he gave a talk on trees and this particular talk for whatever reason he focused on each tree species most of his talk focused on the things that were attacking those tree species (laughs) so we learned everything that is attacking maples everything that is attacking beaches everything that's attacking cherry it was so depressing (laughs) the long list of things that are attacking all of our uh, native tree species so you know it's funny because when we think about people we recognize many pathogens and bacteria (laughs) and and diseases that people can get there's a lot of things trying to kill us but but just looking at a single species of tree they have all that same stuff. Sure. They have the viruses, they have the animals, they have the plants, they and the they insects. have us. And they have us. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the worst, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, so what does this mean for hemlocks? So I don't know if you came across this. For most of my research, I based what I'm sharing here really on two overviews that I came across, mm-hmm. um, both within the past 10 years or so. Okay. And I was shocked to find out, you've heard of the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the IUCN. Yeah. So they have the red list, which is, you know, this global list of threatened species. Eastern hemlock is on there now. Oh, I didn't know that. It's listed as near threatened, and it's been placed on the red list. Wow. So even though here in western New York, our hemlocks seem to be doing okay um, on a global scale, uh, it's again, eastern hemlock is not found globally, but <laughs> in its range, the woolly adelgid is having a significant impact. Yeah. Um, as another example, in Shenandoah National Park in Virginia, they've lost about 90% of their mature hemlocks. Wow. Now, good news the initial predictions of complete mortality have not been realized. So when it first came out, people were freaking out. We're going to lose all our hemlocks. So especially in the Northeast, a substantial number of infected trees continue to persist. And there was a recently published study, a forest inventory. Uh, They analyzed data for 432 U.S. counties. So it's big. And they found little evidence for large-scale decline and actually a slight increase in median live hemlock basal areas. So, and that was between 1985 and 2005. Okay. So they looked at a lot of counties. It was over 20 years. And they attributed this to positive effects of reforestation and regeneration, kind of overwhelming the negative impacts of the hemlock woolly adelgid. That kind of surprises me because I heard more negative things. But on top of that, you and I are both, I think, pretty astutely aware that hemlocks are a late successional species. Yep. So normally they would, they're not going to be the first things coming back. Now, that being said, yeah. okay, with what I just said, the reviews did go on to say, even though eastern and Carolina hemlocks will probably persist, there's going to be large losses. So mm-hmm. they're not saying that hemlock is as abundant as it once was. There's still hemlocks out there, but there's not going to be as many. 
So it's going to substantially alter our eastern forest ecosystems. Okay, that ties into something I wanted to bring up next. Yeah. Because while you're talking about very specific parks and very specific studies, I'm just going to talk more broadly. No, no, hang on. That study <laughs> I just referenced did have 432 U.S. counties. That's broad. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's I think it's great, too. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to sound so negative. That okay. It's like, now, Bill, just wasted your time, but let me tell you what's really <laughs> going on. So... <laughs> So when hemlocks die off in the northeastern United States, they're generally replaced by hardwood species, including birch, oaks, and maples. In the southeastern United States, hemlock is replaced by rhododendron, Ugh. specifically <laughs> rosebay rhododendron, or tulip tree, liriodendron tulipifera, tulipifera, right? I love that one. <laughs> when rhododendron is absent. And since it's being replaced, and because hemlocks are late successional, like I was just saying, we may experience something called a functional loss of hemlocks in eastern forests. Right. Right. So when a foundation species like hemlock declines, its control of ecosystem structure and function may decline long before the hemlock itself disappears completely. So this change in ecosystem type will likely lead to the further loss of terrestrial arthropods, amphibians, plants, fish, and aquatic invertebrate species that are associated uniquely with hemlock forests. Right. Some researchers claim that the hemlock woolly adelgid is just as pervasive and destructive as the chestnut blight, Dutch elm disease, and the emerald ash borer. Wow. Yeah. What, and what? some researchers have postulated that Suga canadensis and Suga caroliniana will be functionally extinct in our lifetime. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it goes back to what we were saying before, how it affects streams. Mm-hmm. You think of a stream that's bordered by oaks hickories and a stream that's flowing through a hemlock grove. Those are two completely different streams, practically. Oh, the things yeah, you're going to find within there living under the rocks and in the water, it's different. So just because hemlocks are going to persist, it does not mean things aren't going to change. Right, exactly. So before we move on, just to bring it in to something small, but but still important, you mentioned birds associated with hemlock before. Yeah. In my research, I was surprised. Did you know there are two species that are hemlock obligates? I don't remember which ones, anyway. (laughs) So the black-throated green warbler. Right. Which we come across... Pretty often. Pretty regularly. Yeah, yeah, during during breeding time. And then also the Acadian flycatcher. Mm-hmm. So hemlock obligates. If you don't know, they need hemlocks in order to reproduce and go through their life cycle. Those two were definitely in my list earlier. Yeah. But in that list, I combined birds that absolutely rely on it with birds that are just more likely to be in hemlocks than not be in them. Yeah, there are nearly 90 bird species that rely to some degree on those understory microclimates created by hemlocks. Yeah. So and that's just birds. There's also invertebrates, like you keep mentioning, mm-hmm. and then salamanders. There's even, if you remove hemlocks, there's lowered fungal activity in the soil. Oh, interesting. So they're hugely important. Yeah, and not, I mean, we've been talking a lot of, like, structural things that they're good for. Yeah. But, I mean, their seeds are definitely something that a lot of birds will eat as well. Yeah. And then just to go back to the structural stuff, in the wintertime, they really hold up a lot of snow. So some deer really rely on them. To have a kind of a place of refuge, especially in deep snowfall. But we can do with fewer deer. <laughs> <laughs> there's other there's other ungulates, yeah. all right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so we've given you the bad news. Let's talk about what people are doing to try to save the hemlocks and to combat the woolly adelgid. Yeah, so when we say combat, we use a fancy word called manage. <laughs> and I want to make it clear that management does not mean eliminate. (laughs) It just means control the population so it's no longer a pest. Right. Yeah. So if we can somehow reduce the population to where it has a niche instead of where it's overwhelming other species, then that would be a very good thing if we could get it to that level. Yeah. Okay. So here are some of the ways they've tried to do it with chemicals. And I know you have a little bit on this too. Yeah. This is chemical is really it right now. That is the most effective way. We have something called foliar insecticides that are useful. We have seen some good results with it, but they actually require completely drenching the foliage, and it's something that needs pretty regular reapplication. Yeah, and you have to treat trees individually. Yeah. So if you have ornamental trees, hey, that works great, but it's kind of hard to do in a forest. Yeah, and speaking of something that's hard to do on a forest as well, since the 1990s, a new class of systemic insecticides, the neonicotinoids, became available. These have several active ingredients that successfully control the hemlock woolly adelgid. Uh, They can be applied a few different ways. There's something called soil drench, soil injection, 
and several methods of trunk injection. So what I mean by that is that this insecticide is relying on the xylem to transport the insecticide up through the tree and up to the needles. But the problem is that you really got to do this before severe damage occurs. And the reason is because it takes about one to three months for a healthy hemlock to transport the insecticides to where the adelgids are feeding. And infected trees are clearly going to take a little bit longer than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I found some potential drawbacks for uh, chemical applications could include unintentionally targeting beneficial arthropods and pollinators, as well as decreasing populations of soil-dwelling organisms and causing unintentional stress on local microclimates. Yeah, and it's important to mention that hemlocks are often found near well-hydrated soils and waterways. <laughs> so so th that means more or less that we have to be careful about not leaching insecticide into neighboring bodies of water. Yeah. So, yeah. So now we can move on to biological control. Yeah. Right? Which... Most people, you talk about this, and the first thing they say is, are you crazy releasing another animal to control an animal? Because we've had lots of horror stories, we know. <laughs> but it actually is happening, and there have been some successes, like with uh, purple loosestrife. Mm -hmm. There were releases of an a couple different kinds of insects that have been used to control it, and so far, so good. We've had at least a decade or more of reducing those populations. And as, as we said before, purple loosestrife now in some areas, even here in New York State, it occupies a niche. Uh, it's not invasive in those areas. Yeah, I've seen whole fields of it reduced to nearly nothing. Yeah. yeah. So researchers have been looking over to Asia and northwestern North America. That's what I found for organisms useful in what they call a classical biological control program. And since the 1990s, this approach has really been the major focus of hemlock willia delchid research and management. So there's been up to 50 generalist and specialist predators found in its native range and several species have been released here now i don't know how many you want to go into because i actually right. found the reviews went through a lot of them mm -hmm. but for the most part they would go through oh so many thousand have been released or so many hundred of thousand but they'd end up with but it's not looking so good the most promising ones that i've found have been in the laracobius genus yeah. So there's one called Laracobius nigrinus. Little Larry. Little Larry. You came across <laughs> that too? Yeah. Because I kept wishing that, oh, I wish they would give these things common names just so it's a little easier to say. And then I found one that referred to Laracobius nigrinus as Little Larry, which I loved. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a specialist predator, and that's native to Oregon and Washington. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's from the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. yeah. They said that one shows particular promise. It was introduced to the east in 2003, and almost 400,000 have been released since then. And field success looks promising. It appears to prefer to feed on the adelgid over other adelgid species. And there's evidence that it can have substantial mortality on the adelgid and reduce population. Do you know what the problem is with it? No. It feeds exclusively on those spring generation eggs and nymphs. Oh, okay. Which means it'll probably be most effective as part of a suite of predators, not by itself. Oh, right. Did you find out about Laracobius osakensis? No, I didn't. I came across Rubidus, which is actually a native to the east. Right. But the only problem with that one is that it does feed on hemlock woolly adelgid, but that's not its preferred prey. Right. I'm going to talk about those two species then. Yeah. So there's another beetle, Laracobius osakensis, which may sound like Osaka. So that is from Japan. its native range in Japan. Yeah. And that responds preferentially to odors produced by eastern hemlock, and it moves to it. So that suggests... This species relies on volatiles produced by the adelgid's host plants mm. to locate potential prey. Oh, interesting. Which I thought was cool. Um, and its life cycle mirrors the life cycle of the hemlock woolly adelgid well. So this one is actually seen as the most promising right now. Now the downside is uh, those two species, Negrinus and Osakensis, they seem to be hybridizing with rubidus. I was just about to bring that up because <laughs> in my research I found that you got to be really careful yeah. about introducing things especially when they so, share a genera. So you're saying that when we're releasing non-native species we need to be careful? <laughs> but that's the thing that they're... Welcome they're, to stating the obvious. <laughs> but that's the thing they're worried about is, right. is hybridizing. And it's something we worry about with plants. It's something we worry about with insects that we bring in because um, we don't want to because we want to sustain those natural genotypes right. that, that are specific to an area. So hybridization yeah. could lead to loss of genetic identity. Mm -hmm. But 
It could also lead to loss of host specificity. So the thing that oh. we're trying to shoot for, and it could lead to displacement of native species as well. Yeah. So they got to be careful of that. Now, the good news, there's little evidence suggesting that hybridization is impacting predation by either introduced species. Okay. What they've found is that hybridization, when it's occurring, doesn't seem to be impacting what we're shooting for but we still need to be worried about other factors. Right, yeah. right. All right, so also being studied, they're looking at some species of leucopus flies. Uh, there's a fungal agent that they're looking at, what they call a biopesticide. I had read about a few fungal pathogens that were definitely effective, but so far they had only been used on small-scale tests. Yes. Yeah. Everything that I found with these last few, that's what they're talking about. So a biopesticide is just a type of pesticide derived from a natural material like animals, plants, bacteria, or certain minerals. So, I mean, you could think of baking soda as a biopesticide in some cases. So the fungal agent, it has been shown to reduce hemlock willi adelgid by 75%. So there's also a simple method that came up in the reviews I read, just called canopy thinning. So trimming branches high up to let more light in. So let me jump in on that. The reason they're doing this is because researchers have noticed that hemlocks in full sunlight do not support dense populations of the hemlock willi adelgid. They also found that trees with large crowns also do better than trees with small crowns. And this makes a lot of sense because trees with larger crowns can intercept more sunlight and they could produce more of those photosynthetic products that they would need to produce new growth. Right. So what their thought is, is that if they thin hemlock canopies and open them up to more sunlight, they might be able to reduce hemlock woolly adelgid infestations. Though we do need a better understanding of what damage that this could cause instead, such as photo damage to the shade needles. A couple studies they referenced found that medium level canopy thinning seemed to be best. You didn't want to thin too much Mm -hmm. uh, because that would actually be detrimental to the tree, letting in too much sunlight. Uh, And you obviously don't want to thin it too little because then you're not going to have an impact. I mean, that makes sense. And when I talk about shade needles versus sun needles, that's a a totally a real thing. Those needles are structurally different in terms of their thickness or the amount of chloroplast they have. They're operating on a different level. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. All right. So anything else on biological control? Kind of. So we were talking about hybridization, and because of the resistance that Suga chinensis shows to hemlock woolly adelgid damage, researchers have been trying to cross that species with both Suga canadensis and Suga caroliniana to varying success. You're talking about host plant resistance. Yes. I felt that was like another oh, area. Oh, <laughs> okay. I was using uh, the segue of hybridization. No, that's okay. Can I jump in a little yeah, here? Yeah, jump in. Good, because what I found was reference to they would take hemlock species from Asia and the Pacific Northwest, they would artificially infest them with hemlock willi adelgid. Mm -hmm. And they found that those plants were either resistant and or tolerant to the adelgid. So even in the absence of native predators, those species within its native range will do okay. Right, right. So that's suggesting that there's some host plant factors that we can tap into. And we've talked about secondary metabolites before which are things that the tree produces that aren't important for its growth or reproduction, but it is important for protecting itself against viruses and other species that are trying to attack it, various pests. So you talk about uh, crossing with uh, Tsuga chinensis. Yeah. So they've tried that with Caroliniana. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, which was successful. Yeah, but have you heard with Eastern Hemlock, it's been unsuccessful. Oh, I've heard. (laughs) (laughs) I live a very sad life, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) But I love in, in the review it said, but advances in methodology may help overcome this obstacle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, really quick before we move on from the hybrids, I just want to mention that on the successful hybridization between Chinensis and Caroliniana, fewer adelgids would settle on the tree, fewer of the settling adelgids survived, and the surviving adelgids grew slower than on Suga Caroliniana itself. By itself. But this resistance was only intermediate compared to something like Suga chinensis on its own. Right. Yeah. So they're doing better, but it's still not great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, there's also been reports of eastern hemlocks growing vigorously, specific trees doing well in heavily infested areas with woolly adelgid. Okay. So obviously you're wondering, okay, what's with these species? And sometimes this is for 20 plus years, these trees are doing well. So this has led to some experiments with these populations. So cuttings from these individuals compared with known susceptible trees showed lower 
Woolly adelgid settlement and higher woolly adelgid mortality. So there's certain eastern hemlock trees that seem to have some resistance to the adelgid. So we would need to use these trees to manipulate resistance within the population, but it's likely to take decades. All right, so both of the reviews that I read said that if we're going to have a long-term sustainable approach, it's probably going to involve all of these things. So you're going to have um, chemical applications and biological control and host plant resistant, all part of an integrated pest management system. And just to touch on a couple of those, chemical treatments can be used as a short-term treatment that keep the hemlock woolly adelgid at bay while the biocontrols have time to establish and eventually sustainably keep the hemlock woolly adelgid controlled. Yeah. And most of the things I was reading basically ended every single one of their papers with, and this strategy needs to be further explored, <laughs> a.k.a. setting themselves up for further research grants. And, and funding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need more money. Yeah. yeah. But definitely more research needs to be done. And if all else fails, a complete collection representing the entire genetic diversity of Carolina hemlock was completed in 2006. Oh, nice. But it's kind of easy to do. It's a pretty small range, right? <laughs> <laughs> Since 2005, though, eastern hemlock seeds have been being collected with stronger efforts in the southern range where there is more genetic diversity and where it's more at risk. Yeah. So if all else fails, we have the seeds. And currently, more than 2.5 million hemlock seeds have been stored in seed banks at the USDA National Center for Genetic Resources Prevention, the USDA Forest Service Ash Seed Facility, and the North Carolina State University, or planted at conservation seed orchards in Brazil, Chile, and the United States. So that's good. Yeah. More talented than people than we are are doing something good. Yeah, and I want to end on what you can do personally. So like I said before, it probably doesn't have much of an effect, but you can move your bird feeders away from hemlocks, which should make it less likely that they'll land on hemlocks and pick up any crawlers or ovisacs. And if you find infested trees, make sure to report them to your local environmental organization. That's a good idea. Yeah. yeah, and I think we can put more information about that in the episode notes. Sure. In fact, there's actually a sheet that you can fill out that you can print right offline that, that we'll put in there. Great. Okay, guys, we hope you enjoyed the episode. I think it's a long one. <laughs> it's a lot of info. First and foremost, we want to thank our growing list of supporters on Patreon. A special thank you to our top patrons, Alyssa, Rob, Molly, we named the dog Indy, Bethany, Matt, and especially Scott, Ken, and Diane. And we also want to mention that we have two new patrons, yeah. Sean and Morgan. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. We also want to thank our new anonymous five-star reviewers. Thank you guys so much. And we also received four more written reviews since uh. the last episode. So thank you, M. Borden, Prairie Dog, Trice is Nice, and I'm guessing Jesse's Tea, I, I think, think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that means we have to do something special. We had promised 25 written reviews. Yeah. And so Bill and I were talking about it, and we thought to do something totally different than what we normally do, we thought it'd be fun to release a bonus episode where Bill and I just kind of answered questions that you guys might have about us. So if you have any questions that you want to know about us personally, or even maybe why we chose an episode topic, why we said what we said, or really you could ask us anything you want, and we'll answer it in the next bonus episode. Right. So as soon as we get enough questions in, and hopefully that's sooner than later, we'll put the episode out, and uh, it should be fun. Yeah, thanks for the reviews, folks. Yeah, and keep those reviews coming. It really helps get the word out to more people. I did bring email. Can I read it? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I know you like to pat yourself on the back, so let's do this. Well, I think it, it's going to encourage more people to write. We received an email that just did wonders for Steve and my self-esteem, which yeah. <laughs> always needs a good shot. Uh, <laughs> it just really struck home and let us know that people are listening, and I thought I'd share it. Now, I wanted to share who the email was from, but after they initially sent it to us, both you and I contacted them, and they didn't get back to us. Mm. So I'm not comfortable right now sharing their name, but I will like to share the email. Yeah. So it starts off with, hey guys, I've been continuing to enjoy the podcast and eagerly await each new episode but I was just revisiting my favorite ones and thought I would email it. Specifically, I'm speaking of episode 8, where y'all discuss the environmental impacts of vegetarian and vegan diets. Our riskiest episode. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> when I saw the episode title, I was super skeptical going into the episode, which I love to read that. Yeah. 
All the typical arguments for why going vegetarian or vegan isn't as great for the environment as you think came to my mind. Amazingly though, almost every argument I thought of, you addressed in an intelligent, reasonably unbiased way. Reasonably unbiased. Yeah. <laughs> We're all a little biased. Yeah. Yeah. Makes you talk about you. <laughs> I don't want to write a novel in an email, but I wanted to give you some encouragement because due to your episode, my husband and I transitioned to vegetarian and finally to a vegan diet. We've been eating mostly vegan for two months. I say mostly because I don't refuse food from friends if they have prepared for us and it has meat or animal products. But we are so much more conscious of our diet and I'm becoming more outspoken about our lifestyle. So I read all of that to say thank you. Keep up the good work. You're reaching those fence sitters like I was. Oh, man, you're making me look so bad. <laughs> you said her name. Oh, I could bleep it. Yeah, you could. Oh, uh, Bill, they're making me look so bad. Why? Because I've been a vegetarian for like eight years, and only in the last like two or three years have I stopped buying uh, dairy or eggs. Remember, <laughs> it's not about perfection. It's about reducing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all right. But really quick on that, though. Really good. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for writing in to us, sharing that story with us. And folks, if you have an email you want to share with us, a story like that, or a criticism, or an episode idea, anything you want to share with us, remember, you can email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com. Make sure to visit us on Instagram at the Field Guides Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Field Guides Pod. Like and follow us on Facebook and visit our website at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And if you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com slash thefieldguides. But if you're like us and you can't afford to financially support a podcast right now, there are other ways you can help out. You can share our episode with friends or rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us get the word out to more people. So, folks, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. We sure will. <laughs> okay, Bill, play along. Okay. Fill in the blank. If eastern hemlocks are good, then hemlock woolly delgids are... Evil. Wrong. <laughs> the correct answer is, I know you're trying to get me to say evil, Steve, so go f*** yourself. There is no good, there is no evil, and life is meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> so depressing. <laughs>